Hey friends, I'm Jeffrey Rickman. This is my channel Plain Spoken on here. I try and facilitate conversations that I think are important and appropriate for Methodists broadly, and in particular, uh, those in the global Methodist fold. I'm a global Methodist clergy, and uh, I've, I've had a number of interviews and conversations that I've, that I've hosted. And if you're watching this, usually it's probably because you think I'm not half bad at that. So if that's the case, I think you're really gonna enjoy this one. Even if you don't, it's one that really needs to happen and it's around the topic of abortion and the sanctity of human life and how it is that we really should, uh, in unity, witness to a world that is uh, widely practicing this, this way of looking at life. Uh, I believe that we have uh, another witness that we can lift up, but I'm not really an expert in this field. I, I've listened to experts and I have my own opinion, but I'm also of the mind that a lot of people are just not particularly interested in the opinions of another white guy. And I, I want to acknowledge that uh, truth knows no color or gender, but even so, I knew that in order to have this conversation, it was important to have females, not just a part of it, but hopefully uh, taking the lead in it. So to that end, I want to introduce my guests today. I was I was reached out to by the few, is it Fugate or Fugate? Fugate. Fugate. Okay. So we got Nate and Holly Fugate, who are just recently joining the uh, Global Methodist Church, they're serving in Ohio. And we have my lovely wife, Sarah Beth. She's never, I don't think we've done anything on Plain Spoken with you yet. So um, Sarah Beth uh, did some reading this morning. She, of course, has her firm beliefs as well. The Fugates are, uh, we, we are not co-equal here. They're very well read in this. They are very um, active in this. And so uh, we're taking a learner's posture this mm -hmm. morning we're, we're firm in biblical matters and matters of conscience, but the Fugates really have a lot to teach in this capacity. So, Nate and Holly, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you feeling? We're glad to be here. Feeling good. Thank you. Nate, Nate and I uh, agreed before the recording began that we were going to do our best to, to let the women take the lead. I'm going to ask questions because that's just uh, what I do, but I, I really want to defer to Holly first and then uh, Sarah Beth pick up and then we'll just um, uh, go from there. So Holly, perhaps it'd be appropriate to start with your personal story and how it is that you came to care strongly about this issue. Well, I remember that I started noticing it as being something that was a drawing on my heart as a child, probably about 12 years old, um, I started to pick up on um, things that I would see in the news, things that I would hear my parents talk about. I noticed, oh, this is this is a problem with the world, isn't it? This is how people are, are treating children. And uh, as a young teenager, that was right when, I don't know if you've seen it, the, the movie Amazing Grace came out. Uh, about uh, Wilberforce and his uh, his Clapham cohort taking on um, um, the right to own slaves in a way that nobody had ever thought to address before in history. And they basically changed the entire concept of how the world views slavery. And I thought, that's what I should do. What's the equivalent issue in my era? What would I be called to be involved in? And it seemed obvious that the equivalent thing uh, for right now was abortion because it's something that most of the world sees as normal and as a right. Um, and changing the perspective on that is a is a monumental shift that has to be slowly changed from the ground up. 
so I got involved in um, some activity around my area. And then I was I helped with the pro-life club in college at Wheaton, Wheaton College um, in the Chicago area. I was uh, had the privilege of leading that club for a couple of years. And there I got connected with the um, teaching the um, education and outreach organization Justice for All which goes around the country teaching uh, pro-life apologetics in a very gracious, very grounded manner um, to uh, college groups and church groups around the country. So I got to intern with them for a year out of college, traveled all around the country, learned all the arguments, got to be like inside the, like at the table while new arguments were being developed. Um, actually, I was, I was there when what is now considered in those circles to be like the best pro-life argument while it was like at the drawing table. So it was, it was a really neat timing for me. And I got to hear and talk to probably a couple hundred different um, pro-choice people in, in conversation where I was really trained to listen to them and try to understand their perspective and be able to articulate um, the the logic of the pro-life position in a way that they could receive um now i did not end up staying with justice for all because we were getting married and he had a more grounded locale to his job because he was getting his first uh church appointment um and as i said as i as i left that i had done so much telling other people helping other people want to love their children that i wanted to go and love my own now so we got married and started having kids. You guys have how many children now? Three living. Okay. Okay. Sarah Beth, uh, for the sake of the audience, uh, would you rehearse kind of your uh, background in this topic and, and where you started and where you currently are? Hmm. Yes. Um, I would say that this has just been a afterthought for me for most of my life um i i i had friends who were and i i still um have acquaintances from my time in college who are very um pro-choice and will hear hear nothing else um And yeah, I, I have not tried to, in, I've never tried to engage someone on this, in this conversation. So um, it's, I don't talk about it a lot. I, I know my own convictions. Have they always been the same? Um, you know, they may, I don't know that I ever, I, I have always been pro-life. I may have wavered. I never made a decision to be pro-choice, my my convictions I think wavered for a few years, but then I came back, or so they became firmer. I grew up liberal, where it was just a woman's right to to do whatever, and then uh, it was actually you. I don't know if you remember this. We were on the road in Idaho when we lived up there, and we, there's this guy who makes Christian comics, Adam Four D. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but um, it's the scenario is that two people are driving a car and up ahead, they see something wrapped in a blanket that might be moving. It might be alive. They're just not sure. 
and they have this kind of quick, they have to make a decision. Are they going to run it over or are they going to swerve out of the way? Well, if it might be alive, you swerve out of those. So, you know, in a situation of doubt, you choose not to kill. So mm-hmm. um, that that's just what opened me to the ethics, reopened me to the ethics. And, and then I've gone to the other uh, poll now where um, I, I'm of the mind that that as soon as a, a new unique uh, chromosomal uh, being begins at the moment of conception, that's, that's a new life. And that, that none of the arguments about, uh, dependence or, um, uh, developmental ability at all figure into that. So, um, mm. uh, I, I'm a black and white guy. I just get very <laughs> clear there. And that's not that I have no compassion for those with limited resources, but that is, you know, historically informed perspective shows the vast majority of humans who've ever lived have been in desperate and dire po- poverty. They brought children into that world and made the best of it. And we can too, if we choose to live with dignity and um, rather than uh, materialistic concern for pleasure. So that's all cards on the table where I'm at. Uh, Nate, briefly, uh, I think you had a similar path to mine where you weren't as clear until your wife started causing you to ask questions. What were the particulars of, of your journey on this, this subject? Uh, well, I actually, I'm probably a little bit closer to your wife uh, than you, um, because I, I've I've always been from a, a, a pro-life perspective in in saying, nope, I think this is a, a human being. I think we ought to protect it. But I just didn't really care that much. Um, it wasn't part of my milieu. It wasn't part of my thinking. It wasn't part of my passion. Uh, and then Holly and I met in college and uh, started dating. And, and we started talking about these things that were important to us. And you've heard how important it was to her even at an early age. And uh, in those conversations, it was made very clear that, yeah, I was on her side, but it wasn't my thing. And uh, I remember very clearly sitting in uh, by the coffee shop in, in one of the buildings and uh, she's saying, Nate, if if this many children were being killed anywhere else in the world for any other reason, I know that you would care. I know that you would be outspoken to be doing something about it why aren't you like that here in your own backyard? Mm-hmm. And those were kind of like a kick in the gut and saying, yeah, but what I say I believe and and my priorities uh, don't line up here. And so I had to kind of reevaluate, do I really believe this? Do I really care about it? And I I started looking at the arguments. I even started trying to uh, debate you. So I, I flipped sides <laughs> when she did that, just kind of as a defensive mechanism. Um, and... Uh, Yep, she she won me over, and uh, I said, "All right, this is something that I need to start dedicating my life to." Um, and so we've had the opportunity to to work side by side since then. Obviously, she's done a lot more work um, on the outreach, on the grassroots work, and uh, I'm more of a a legal guy, and so I've worked more on the legislative side of the church. Um, but we've we've been able to do some really cool work together. So when we're talking about church legislation, of course, come at, you, you were United Methodist clergy, right? Yeah, I was an ordained elder. Yeah, so um, the United Methodist Church was very big on legislation, taking a, a public stance on any moral issue. Seems to me that the global Methodist Church is not at all geared in that direction. Do you get the same impression? I, I think at this point, that's true. Um, I, I think that there's a, more of a push to say, let's focus on doing ministry at the local church level and giving more freedom to churches to, to figure what that is for their context. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why we were kind of hoping we could have this conversation because 
the the GMC is very much in its formational stage and mm -hmm. figuring out what it what what its DNA is going to be. And uh, some of that freedom, I think, is important to have as part of the DNA. But uh, we think that being able to articulate a position on abortion uh, to to train laity in why we take that position uh, and to have that formed as as part of the nexus of who we are in the GMC is pretty important. Um, and so, so would I be right in uh, understanding that the Fugates at least are of the mind that uh, the Global Methodist Church probably would not should not aim to be a body that makes room for all positions with respect to this particular issue. But if we want to um, really take the right side, that is God's side on this issue, that, that this should be the one perspective of anyone that's associated with the Global Methodist Church is sanctity of human life uh, being turned off to, to any kind of abortive measure uh, with, with very extreme uh, uh, exceptions. Uh, do, are y'all of the mind that the GMC should stake out this as the global Methodist position, or do you think that there should be uh, a variety of beliefs permissible in the GMC? I'm deferring to Holly in particular on this. Well, I am not the one who is involved in, in the legislative side of things, but I think that it is both of our perspectives that it is important to the foundation of um, the Global Methodist Church to be clear on this issue. And the way that the Book of Discipline and the United Methodist Church had always phrased it left, I think, too much room for interpretation, too much room for differing perspectives. Um, and I think that we have an opportunity now to establish that position with more clarity, um, being careful that we are still trying to minister to those who find themselves in difficult pregnancy situations and those who now, especially after the Dobbs decision, are uh, reeling from these changes in the laws, which is going to take some time to, to shift culturally the way people respond to that. I think we need to have some grace there for the way people are handling that. But overall, yes, I think that the Global Methodist Church needs to be clear. Life begins at conception. All human life is equally valuable. And we're going to um, do everything that we can to support both the mother and the child. Yeah, you wrote a piece after Dobbs. You wrote a, a commentary that was published by UM News, which very much surprised me because it was unapologetically from a pro-life perspective in which you start off very clearly saying uh, a number of people have the mistaken impression that the United Methodist Church's stance on abortion is um, somewhat open to it when in actuality we have not we anymore the united methodist church's statement on abortion is is closed to the vast majority of abortions that take place it's not ever to be used as a form of birth control and it should only ever be entertained whenever it uh jeopardizes the love not love whenever the pregnancy jeopardizes the life of the mother um are you are you of the mind that the united methodist church's language on abortion was really that confusing such that it allowed such uh, uh, a wide variety of interpretations or is it your opinion that that those in charge just chose not to read it for what it plainly said or do you think it was both uh, go ahead holly well i think that it has gotten better over time partially through legislative work like nate's that has helped refine the language in it um, but i still think it is 
intentionally vague in some points where if somebody wants it to say you can still have an abortion in this situation, they will take it to mean that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's zoom out and talk about the issue more broadly. Holly, are you familiar with general stats around abortion rates in America? Uh, any any uh, salient facts that uh, a general audience should know that has perhaps avoided this issue and and uh, might benefit from knowing. Um, not not statistics. I I am aware though about a little bit about how the conversation has been shifting in the year since the since the Dobbs ruling, and some of the misinformation that's being proliferated now, especially from um, pro-choice angles. Um, there's a lot of attempts at uh, fear-mongering, essentially, and, and saying that uh, there won't be life of the mother exceptions anywhere, mm -hmm. and we're going to end up living in the world of The Handmaid's Tale, and we won't be able to get care for miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as the suggestion that um, most abortions, especially most late-term abortions, are in emergency situations or because of severe fetal anomalies, which is simply not true. Most, most abortions are still not in emergency situations, are still not um, because of any desperate situation that the woman's in. Um, so, so the the... The left side of this issue, the way that it's been responding, has been to try and push on the really extremes and make them seem more common, um, to try and distract from the the overall perspective issue that, yeah, we're still disagreeing about whether this is a human being whose rights um, still trump <clears throat> the bodily rights that a woman has. Nate, any any other uh, particulars or general uh, realities in the culture around us that that you think a general audience should know? Um, I I think the the most important thing, especially within the church, as as we relate to the culture and as we relate, particularly with uh, as as Wesleyans, um, in in focusing on both personal and social holiness, I think that this this particular topic is the cornerstone of our social holiness. Um, and, and I would agree with Holly in saying that uh, I think this needs to be, we need to be clear as a church what where we stand on this because everything else that we talk about and, and why we care for our neighbors and who our neighbors are um, and everything else that comes with the, the social the, the, the social holiness movement and wanting to care for uh, those around us starts here. I mean, when Jesus gives the, the parable uh, of the of the Good Samaritan, right? He he purposely picks someone who the the Jews would would disparage, right? The that they wouldn't even talk to, uh, and we're talking about all right. Well, how do we treat people who should be the least of us, right? The the most cared and protected for, um, which is both both mothers and and their children. And if we can't if we can't have a a clear position on that and and where we stand as a church. I think that undercuts everything else we say about what we should be doing out in society and changing the world. Because um, if, if you can't get the foundational things right, why should anything else built on that foundation mm. um, be, be credited? Mm. 
or be, be uh, have any credit to it. So uh, I, I think that this is one of the most important conversations that we can have within the church right now as we're as we're kind of building the GMC up from the ground. Yeah, the deep irony of of a nation that has imagined itself at, at one point in history to be a city on a hill, continuing to imagine that in any sense we deserve God's favor or are even interested in it while we have participated in a decades long, um, I would call it a holocaust against the unborn, is um, deeply ironic and, and uh, offensive to the notion that, that one can please God while participating in uh, such, that, that we can feel entitled to God's blessings or as, as though like we're even seeking the Lord when we participate in such a practice is um, silly in a very bad way to me. Sarah Beth, uh, the larger uh, context that we're in, is there any other uh, things that you notice about the contemporary American context around um, uh, sacredness of life, particularly the unborn, that you think is important to bring into this conversation? Um, I'm reading a book right now with um, two discipleship groups that I lead um, by a lady named Rachel Jankovic, and um, she she is making the case she she is yeah she's making the case that what most american christians have built their faith upon is a faulty foundation it's not the foundation of jesus christ and we need to um rebuild and so she spends the first few chapters um helping the reader understand what this foundation is that we've built upon rather than Christ. And um, she talks about existentialism and I'm not a philosophy person and my eyes were glazing over and I was just like, why am I reading about this? I just don't understand. And, and she, I mean, the, the, the man that she was using as a, uh, the main proponent of this um, system of beliefs was, just depraved and and lived a miserable life and uh, it just you know you finish the chapter and you're like oh i feel sick um but but she says you know it on the outside it seems generally okay you know he's making the case that uh existence precedes essence we exist before we truly have our our real being our real value um and and she helps us understand or see how this is faulty when we take it to the most extreme which is okay if we exist first without value then it is okay to abort an unborn an, un, an unborn child because they're not valuable yet they have not created themselves yet who they truly are and then in, in the same in the same vein with our elderly um, you know, with dementia and Alzheimer's, like, are they not truly themselves anymore? So they're not valuable anymore. And, you know, where does that lead? Um, and so that's really impacted, reading this book has really impacted my thinking and helped me get clear on why I believe what I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and what's wrong with what's often promoted by the culture around me. Um, yeah. So I'm sensing, uh, so in almost every conversation I'm ever in, I'm the idealist, but I'm sitting down with three people dealing with ideals and I'm going to be the realist, I guess, in this conversation. <laughs> so when we're dealing with the, the stats, my understanding is that the United States of America generally has a, 
uh, I, I think the population's around 335 million right now. It's hard to say with um, the southern border being how it is, but um, since abortion was uh, legalized and entered a time of free-for-all in the United States, um, there have been over 30 million abortions, I, I think we can safely say. I, I, I actually think it's closer to 34 million, but that's roughly 10% of the American population as it stands having been extinguished. Mm-hmm. Um, this has not been co-equal among all uh, ethnic groups. Rather, it's been concentrated, especially in the black population. There are certain regions like New York City, which would have twice the African-American population today uh, if they had not been practicing this sort of uh, uh, eugenics. Abortion was advocated by eugenics uh, advocates, including uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, who um, definitely believed that it should be used on black and brown people to reduce their populations. Abortion centers are disproportionately located in black and brown population centers. Mm. Um, the, (laughs) The advocacy for abortion took place amongst great misinformation from the very beginning citing made up stats on how many people were seeking back alley abortions or going to other nations. Those were just made from whole cloth. There is no way that abortions were the same after legalization as before. It it definitely multiplied. It's not that there were none happening before, but it's that um, uh, they were uh, multiplied greatly afterwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, Abortionists are not normal people that are concerned with uh, women's rights and well-being. Uh, people like Kurt Gosnell are uh, uh, psychopaths holding on mm. to babies' body parts. Mm. It's been substantiated that abortionists have sold uh, babies' uh, bodies, aborted babies' uh, bodies for uh, different things to different people. Um, and instead of doing anything about it, uh, the people exposing it have been sued to oblivion. It's it's a big, nas- nasty, messy picture once you look into it that really cannot be justified, even from a worldly standpoint. Um, There are a number of worldly people that start looking into it and they discover that the only way to ethically make their way through is through the framework given by Christ and and his disciples. So it's weird that this issue has actually been the touchstone to to cause a lot of people to come to Christ because, um, well, that's, that's probably another conversation for another time. But as I'm looking at it, it's a very practical and eminently practical issue. It's not one that that I've uh, been separated from. Uh, before I was uh, walking rightly with Christ, I was in wrong relationship with a n- number of women, one of whom um, had me take take her the next day to go get a plan B pill, which of course causes an abortion if there was um, uh, the creation of new life. And it's something I, I live with shame with to this day. So, um, you know, uh, this is something that impacts a number of people very personally, very intimately. Uh, As we engage in this conversation, we acknowledge, heck, a lot of people very close to us have come to different conclusions, and I at least would lovingly say the only reason to come to an opposite conclusion is if you're interested in self-justification, but I think deep down we all know that this is morally reprehensible, and um, uh, the loving thing is to come to terms with this. How do you guys respond to that? Uh, do, do you think that deep down we all know that this is a morally reprehensible thing to do and, and the loving thing is to stop justifying it? I think we do have 
some instincts that should lead us to those conclusions. Yes. Um, like you were just talking about natural revelation um, being some something that uh, tells everybody through common grace that, you know, God is God and and his role is law. Um, yes, I, I think that a lot of people should instinctively understand that that the unborn is human and needs to be protected. Um, but don't underestimate the power of of generational propaganda and what we've been told now for 50 years by the country, by society, is that it is not a human being. The unborn is not a human being, or is it best like a potential human being, or your rights over your own body are more important than their rights. And if you heard that message your entire life from every angle, of course, that's what you're going to believe. And, and it's helpful to go into um, interactions or discussions about pro-choice people with a lot of grace, um, understanding that you know, they're, in a sense, they're, they're out there doing their best too with what they know. And they've been given a lot of misinformation and they've been misled a lot. And so bringing clarity with grace and truth I think is is the best approach to being able to unburden people of of some of these delusions so that we can move forward as a society and respect those lives for what they're worth and that that balance of grace and truth was always something that that I was striving for um early on when I was like first exploring these kinds of of pro-life rhetoric arguments um, because as we know, Jesus was the embodiment, the, the word full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. You have to have a balance of those two virtues in order to, to be able to communicate and, and produce things effectively. And I think a lot of times um, Christians especially lean way too far on one side or the other. And we're, we need to be able to to get a good blend of those because if you're too, if you focus too far on on the grace side, coming into it, you get the very wishy washy statements um, that kind of went into the development of the United Methodist position. And I remember hearing at like annual conferences, people, somebody at the microphone saying like, "Oh well, we can't stop women from having abortions because." These are hard situations, as though that were an entire argument. Right. Yeah. And and it's not. It's that doesn't that doesn't flesh out the issue. And yes, you it's admirable that you want to be merciful hmm. to women in difficult situations, and that is Christ-like in a sense. But it's missing a lot of pieces of the puzzle. Um, and if you go too far on the truth side, then you end up with the the angry street preacher waving a sign that nobody listens to. Yeah. So neither side accomplish anything. Um, I, I think we need to, yeah, have use use reason, one of the sides of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and combine that with our knowledge of human rights, which is also from reason, but we also get it out of scripture. And be able to present that tied up together in a in a winsome and caring method 
to be able to communicate to people truths that they don't want to hear because they've been told that they're that they're not true or they're bad things. Um, and, and that's that's a, a very effective thing that most Christians can learn how to do is just learn some of the arguments so that you can bring some grace and truth to the table when it comes up in your series of influence. So the thing that I want to put to you, maybe it's helpful just to, you're, you're obviously well-versed in some of the arguments. Ever since uh, Roe v. Wade took place, one of the popular public arguments was, what's in the womb? It doesn't even resemble us. It's just a blob. It's not alive. Um, I have a hard time believing that women ever believe that. One, because when you have a miscarriage, you see what this looks like and, and the fact that if it's far along at all, it very much resembles a human being. Mm. But secondly, I've watched my wife get pregnant. We have four kids. And um, it's very hard to deny that that thing in the stomach is a living being. You can feel it hiccup. You can feel arms and legs poking. It's obviously moving and alive. Um, you can hear the heartbeat. Yeah, you can hear the heartbeat. So it, it doesn't pass the sniff test for me to imagine that people seriously ever believed that what was in a woman's stomach at that point was not a, a human life, did not resemble human biological life. Um, you're obviously more gifted than I am at this grace angle. Um, can you can you validate? I mean, for me, who just thinks it's absurd that that anyone could ever even believe that without uh, a, a serious um, <laughs> mental defect, uh, is there a gracious way to see that other than people just se- being very self interested and self justifying? Well, I when I talk about the clarifying what was just said and then maybe you can talk Do about the, the yeah. philosophical side so um that that's a that is something that we've heard plenty of times of like we, we don't know what this is yeah um and so we don't know how to treat it uh and therefore we should defer more to taking care of the mother who we can define we do know how they're supposed to be treated uh, but when when people are saying we don't know what that is there, there's kind of two ways that they could be talking about that they could be talking on the biological side and saying yeah, we have, we have no idea what that is. Um, and that's a little bit easier of an argument earlier on when the majority of abortions happened before before uh, 12, 15 weeks, um, where it doesn't look as much. It's it, it it's it's a lot fuzzier on, on the details. Um, and so they could be talking on a biological saying we don't know what that is. And that and that's kind of where I hear you coming from, uh, Jeff, and saying, well, really, like. We, we don't know what it is because science is very much uh, on our side and saying, nope, this is clear. This is a human part of the human species. It is alive. It is growing. Right. It, it is a biological human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so people could mean that. And, and you can argue on that point. We found the the majority of people, when they say something along that, aren't arguing from a biological perspective and saying we don't know if it's like a human species or not. They're arguing more on the philosophical side of saying Okay, maybe it's part of the human species, but it doesn't have the same rights that we have. Um, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have the same value that a, a normal "quote unquote" human would have. Um, and so, it, it's very important that we found whenever people we're talking with people about abortion is asking good questions about them and saying, "Well, what do you mean? Like, what exactly are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. So often in these conversations, 
we talk right past one another. Sure. Uh, yeah. and, and we think that you're talking about uh, like the biological and saying, well, how could you say this is this doesn't make any sense when really they're talking on a more philosophical side. And so asking good questions and actually knowing what the other person is saying and why they're saying that is one of the foundational things in any conversation, but particularly about abortion uh, right. that we need to have. So uh, that's an important distinction, but maybe you could talk about. Well, that was really helpful, though. And the that. thing I would highlight about that is I, I lifted up a straw man caricature of an argument, and then you were able to more graciously flesh out, okay, they're not saying the ridiculous thing that you're hearing. Mm. Um, they're actually saying uh, they're making a moral or philosophical argument that then you can address that rather than talking past each other and going, don't you believe in science? You guys are the science people, uh, which completely misses misses the point. So um, uh, so what would the rebuttal be then that does make the philosophical or, or moral argument that despite the fact that, that these uh, creatures with human chromosomes um, haven't taken breath. You know, for some people that the, the biblical evidence for constituting a new worthy life is taking breath for the first time. Uh, wh what is the firm ground we stand on to say, nope, these, these creatures are every bit as deserving of protection, love, care, life as, as anybody else. Can, can, Holly, can you summarize that case in a way that is uh, winsome and gracious for our audience. <laughs> I hope so. Um, well, the this feeds directly into what has been found by those who are the most experienced with engaging in these types of conversations. Like the actual, I'm not an expert on this. I've just learned this stuff, and I've had some conversations. Um, but the the one the one argument that has been found to be the most helpful. Um, that addresses that that perspective that yes, the unborn might be biologically human, but it isn't a person in the same way that you and I are. Um, is what's generally called the equal rights argument, and the thing that's really cool about this is um, most people out there, most pro-choice people out there, are in a group of uh, folks who would like to think of themselves as proponents of equality. Mm -hmm. They believe in human rights. They believe in, you know, equalizing things for people. Um, they want they want rights for, for all the minority groups. Great. That's a good perspective to come from. This argument pits that desire directly against their desire to remain pro-choice and see the unborn as, as not human. Um, and so they have to decide, like, am I really for equal rights? Mm -hmm. Um so I would, if I were talking to you about this, I would say, well, let's let's stop talking about abortion and the unborn for a little bit and just talk about the people that we see around us, the, all the people in our church, all the people in our town. Would you say that they all have the right to be given basic equal treatment, like the rights to life and food and shelter? Would you say that that all the people around us, not not talking about the unborn right now, yeah. all the people that we can see around us in our town, yeah, easy. They, do they have equal rights? Any reasonable person would say yes. Yeah, they they do. Um, so if we all have equal rights, then it seems like there has to be some common denominator that explains that. There has to be something the same about all of us. So then. Obviously, the question is, 
well, what is the same right. about all of us? And that's where you can get um, a lot of really thoughtful answers, kind of like the uh, the book that you were describing um, with the diff different philosophical positions on, on where people get their rights. And you'll get things like, well, we can all, all the people around us can all think. We all have the ability to think. All right. Is that a good standard by which we can judge people? Do you mean that you're thinking ability level? because then we don't have equal rights even even for like all adults because right. some of us are just smarter than others oh yeah um <laughs> unfortunate but true um so that clarifies that it has to be something it has to be an all or nothing property it can't be a sliding scale it can't be like a dimmer switch you're either in the club or you're not what gets you in the club of equal rights it can't be your thinking ability can it be your ability to think at all can anything that can think at all get into this club of equal rights where we're the same moral moral level as a human adult? The problem with that is that most animals can think at all. Some machines can even be described as being able to think at all. Mm -hmm. Well, then we're in a universe where we have to treat animals and machines with the same basic rights as human beings. I saw a PragerU video where a guy went to a college campus and was getting people to sign a petition in favor of protecting eagle, bald eagle eggs or something. And then he said, okay, well, the next one should be easy for you then too. Let's sign something in favor of uh, uh, right to life for humans. And they say, no, 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 I'm not in favor of that at all. <laughs> and you see that, yeah, a lot of leftists care much more for wildlife, non-humans than they do about humans, they really have created this other category in which these things in the womb really are not even human. So in that sense, I do see- Or valuable. Yeah. Yeah, they haven't been the, given- The bald value. eagle is valuable, but not the unborn child. Well, yeah, and in that one, it, it's even more insulting because, I mean, of course, an eagle in the egg cannot think any more than a human fetus can in the womb, but even so, they're more valuable. That's weird, okay. So go the, on, Holly. The, the, power I kind of... Of this, the power of this argument, not to, to jump in on you, but the power of this argument is we're we're, we're leaving the unborn off the table. We're just yeah. talking we're, about... We're just okay, talking yeah. about... Let's figure out a universal principle that can be applied across the board. What constitutes a worthy human life? Uh, so it, IQ is not it. Thinking ability is not it. What are some other thoughtful responses? Um, a common one... Um again, like, like the book that you're describing was uh, self-awareness, your ability to like recognize yourself as an individual being. And so while, while being able to think set the bar too low and let all the animals and computers in, um, self-awareness sets the bar too high and it excludes young toddlers, infants, uh, some people with mental disabilities, they cannot see themselves as as an individual. Um, babies don't have that ability until at least past like their first birthday. Uh, they don't look in a mirror and know that that's them. Um, so then if that's the bullet we're gonna bite, then you have to say that toddlers and babies are also not in the community of equal rights. So you can't set the bar too high and exclude babies and you can't set the bar too low and include animals. 
There is nothing that fits in that category except for something like humanness, being just being human at all, being of the human species. Mm-hmm. And well, if that is the thing that establishes the club of beings that deserve equal right to life, you have to include the unborn too. They have to be in that circle because they are biologically human, which most, you're right, most people won't disagree with when shown the science on it. Well, the political history here is that pretty much every society, whenever it gives into authoritarian impulses, decides to have this conversation about who is more or less human. And that is the preceding conversation to Holocaust. And so we're not the first society to, to have this conversation about which humans are deserving of rights and which aren't. We're actually fulfilling a, a long precedented tendency of societies that want to justify mass murder. Um, I know that's not the winsome turn for this, but um, <laughs> we, we have always, the human inclination, and by that I mean sinful, human, mm. uh, human is synonymous with sinful, um, is to create others within the human family rather than acknowledging the the image of God in all all people. Um, So the only distinction, you know, and forgive me, this is a very crass way of of putting it, but it gets the point through. The only distinction between the unborn and any other class of humans that you might otherwise kill is that you can't hear their screams when you kill them. And that's the only thing that separates them and other classes that we protect at this point. If if there was someone else that we could erase without... um, having to deal with the byproduct of it, then, um, well, heck, I mean, there are those things coming down the road. Uh, I, I'm thinking in particular of uh, the acronym it's been given as MADE, but in uh, Canada, medical assistance in 